Lord, we just ask you to renew your spirit in us. Help us feel that connection to be in tune with you, to be walking with you, and let our, our whole being resonate with you this hour. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, praise team. Can we use our hands to give our appreciation for the marvelous job they do leading us? Discipleship key words number three, character, the stamp of the master. First section, the tricky target that thwarts us. We're making our way through the seven sayings or markers of the way of Jesus. Number one, I've begun to follow Jesus and I'm depending upon the spirit of Jesus in my journey. We looked at that depending on the spirit part a few weeks ago. And last week was number two, I'm being sent by Jesus to bless others and invite them to follow him. Have you been intentionally blessing others this past week? A smile, a greeting, learning their name. Today's number three. I'm learning to be like Jesus in my attitudes, behaviors, and character. I'm glad that's an ABC. It always helps remember it a little bit. To be holy is to be like Jesus. So really we're talking about what's traditionally known as sanctification, if you want the big label for it. Allowing God to holify our character, which sort of includes our attitudes and behavior. Character, the stamp of the master, letting Jesus make his imprint upon us. From Wikipedia, the ancient Greek word character, T-I-R it ends, is thus an engraver, originally in the sense of a craftsman, but then also used for a tool used for engraving and for a stamp for minting coins. From the stamp, the meaning was extended to the stamp impression, Plato using the noun in the sense of engraved mark. So if you picture a coin, uh, the stamp of Her Majesty the Queen is a likeness, a representation of the original, resembling what she actually looks like. That's the character on the coin. We come to resemble what we worship. We start to take on its character. Our heroes make an impression upon us. They stamp us consciously or unconsciously. From Pastor Phil Delso's Way of Jesus Handbook, it's chapter 10, we're kind of riffing off this week if you're following along. He said, it's true that by nature each of us has a certain emotional predisposition, but it is equally true that our emotional profile has also been powerfully shaped by the people we live with, nurture. Unconsciously, for the most part, we have adopted the emotional contours of the person or people with whom we identify. For example, if your model was the Clint Eastwood, lone gunslinger man of few words, do not be surprised if you acted out. Of course, in the movies, the strong, silent hero wins, but in real life, this is often a formula for emotional disaster. This is the reason that we need a different role model with whom to identify, end quote. So choose carefully the heroes or stars or idols you are going to allow to stamp you with their character. 
Attitude is part of character. Attitude involves choosing our goals, what we're about. You might think happiness is a reasonable goal, but happiness itself is a tricky target. If you only aim to make yourself happy, you'll wind up disappointed. It's a target that thwarts you. Again, from Pastor Phil's handbook, he said, the life of the follower of Jesus is not about spiritual fulfillment. Someone has observed that you do not find happiness by pursuing happiness. Happiness is a byproduct of something else, and happiness shows up as happy surprise. Focusing on happiness is about focusing on self, and inevitably focusing on self shrivels the human heart. This is the lesson that underlies that great piece of philosophy, the Grinch that stole Christmas, end quote. So if we better not idolize Clint Eastwood or John Wayne or Anne Hathaway or Jennifer Aniston, and name your favorite, we'd be thwarted to go after happiness for just us. What are we to aim at? Character that's worthwhile would imprint on the most worthy one. I use the word imprint there. It's also a biological term. Our cat Pearl had five kittens last Sunday. She spent a lot of time nursing them this past week under the sink in the cupboard of one of our bathrooms. They are busy imprinting on her. Uh, their eyes are just starting to open today. In imprinting, according to the encyclopedia, a very young animal fixes its attention on the first object it sees, hears, or is touched by, and thereafter follows that object. If you do a search for imprinting error, you'll find a video about a Canada goose in Alaska that thinks it's actually a sandhill crane. Biologists speculate its mother laid the egg in a crane nest, so it was raised by a sandhill crane mother and thus formed its identity based on that. Sally Goose. So I'm glad Pearl's kittens are getting lots of time with a real mother cat. Yes, they're getting some time with Patty too, but I think they're basically imprinting on Pearl. What we identify with or imprint on has importance in whether or not we have a sense of self-worth. Your identity in Jesus secures a sense of self-worth. He gives you value. You know you're loved and treasured. You don't have to go hunting for it in all the wrong spots. Dignity or worth or value that's anchored in Jesus guards against needing the approval of others. Our scripture reading from John 15, the vine and the branches, emphasizes the need for Jesus' followers to abide or remain in him. Stay plugged into him. Keep connected to him. The way a branch derives nutrients and support from the main trunk of the vine. Uh, the Sunday school, Annie Van Mar was teaching. Thanks, Annie, for doing that. And uh, just after the lesson, I asked the kids if they'd ever pulled up weeds from the fields for their parents. And I remember pulling up goldenrod, and then we put this big pile of goldenrod in the driveway to let it all dry out and wither. That's kind of what happens to us if we get disconnected from Jesus. John 15, 4, 7, and 9, Jesus said, Remain in me, and I'll remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Think of remaining or abiding or as imprinting, staying connected to, being stamped by. Here the Savior is talking about real and lasting intimacy, knowing him and being supplied by him. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 uses what's probably an early Christian hymn to sketch some of Jesus' most essential characteristics. Here's a clue to unselfishness. Remember, happiness is not to be pursued selfishly. It's a byproduct. Philippians 2, 1-4. If you have any encouragement from being united to Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion from being united with Christ, then, Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. See what he's getting at? We obtain encouragement, comfort, compassion, sharing in the spirit by being united with, one with Jesus. So that makes it possible for us to be unselfish, not conceited, to count others better than ourselves, to look to their interests instead of just what's best for me. Then Paul introduces this early hymn by saying in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, how does the hymn sum up Jesus' attitude? He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. 2.7 But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here are three broad categories describing Jesus' character. We'll use as subheadings in today's message. The nature of a servant, he humbled himself, he became obedient. The blessing of serving. In a culture that cries out, be your own boss, do your own thing, the notion of serving would seem to be swimming against the current. But the New Testament writers exhort servants and even slaves, as existed in Roman times, to have a sort of hypervision, to put on their heavenly virtual reality goggles, as it were. They're to see beyond their immediate boss to the one who's looking over their boss's shoulder the Lord and judge to whom one day all will give account. All right, so the church at Colossae 3, to 24. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men 
since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. You see the hypervision pointers? Reverence for the Lord, as working for the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Your boss is not the one finally in control. Be as diligent in serving your employer as you would be to Jesus himself. Similarly, the Apostle Peter exhorts those at the bottom of the economic scale, uh, 2.18, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. What? Unjust suffering? Why? Because he is conscious of God. There it is again. Don't forget God is part of this picture. It's not just your earthly master you're serving. God is well able to square up what's owing if you're treated poorly in this life. Our supreme example is Jesus himself who modeled servanthood in John 13. He took off his outer clothes, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to wash his disciples' feet. He emphasized he was giving them an example as their teacher and Lord. Verse 14 on. He says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Classic Christliness. He's not asking us to do anything for others he hasn't already done for us. Next, humility, thinking of yourself less. Humility is not doormat theology. It doesn't mean groveling in the dust or self-flagellating, beating ourselves up. Remember, we have value already due to our identity in Christ. We have inherent dignity, having repented, anchored in Jesus, which saves us from needing or seeking the approval of others. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, putting yourself down. It's thinking of yourself less. The key thing is our identity in Jesus, belonging to him. This frees us from feeling like we have to put others down or play one-upmanship. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 24 to 26, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. If I realize I am Christ's, I've received him as Lord and Savior and submitted to him, I'm crucifying selfish desires more receptive to the promptings of God's Spirit. And I'll come across as less conceited and be freed from envying others. I can be content. In John 13, we saw that Jesus stripped off his outer clothing, got down to the floor to wash the disciples' feet, considered about the lowest-ranking task in the household. Can we be humble enough to serve others? At this point in the proceedings, Judas was still present. Judas, who would soon betray Jesus to his enemies, leading to his beating and painful death. Hmm. Are we humble enough to serve even our Judases?
It's one thing to serve people you get along with, but can you swallow your pride and serve those who don't get along with you? Even those who wish you'd never been born. Those who misunderstand you and treat you shabbily without cause. As Jesus proceeds with basin around the room, he comes to Peter, who at first objects to having Jesus even wash him, and then wants him to wash his hands and head as well as his feet. Peter was trying to dictate the terms of the arrangement, but he was overridden by the Lord, who knew what was most needed. Can we accept what's offered on the other person's terms rather than demand more what suits us? Can we humbly accept God's sovereignty, his will, his placement of us, what's happened to us? Or do we object that we want things on our terms? Humility also applies to our attitude towards civil authorities. This can be challenging when our elected officials ask us to do things we don't enjoy doing, like masking up or keeping our distance or getting vaccinated or washing our hands more often, as has been the case with the current pandemic. See what Peter counsels in 1 Peter 2, 13, 16. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, there's this, for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Note the phrase, for the Lord's sake. Here again is that hypervision, seeing the Lord as the one we're accountable to, not just the civil authority. Our authorities are doing their best to commend those who do right, to protect the population the best they can with the tools they currently have available. Tools that may or may not be ideal or fully tested, but are helping keep people out of hospital. I was reading in the news yesterday about the situation in Texas and Houston in particular, hospitals getting filled up and they're having to send people in one case to North Dakota. Yeah. Live as free men, Peter says. Yes, we have certain rights, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. As a follower of Jesus, my primary concern should not be trumpeting my supposed rights, but lovingly exercising my responsibility to love my neighbor as myself, even if that means some temporary discomfort or inconvenience. For example, when I'm with other people, I mask up not so much to protect myself as to protect others, including those who can't vaccinate or are immunocompromised. In humility, we regard others as better than ourselves. We look to their interests, not our own. Next section, obedience, keeping in step. I'm learning to be like Jesus in my attitudes, behaviors, and character. Behaviors have to do with actions, and that's where obedience comes in, where the rubber meets the road. A key biblical phrase here is keeping in step with God's leading in the way of Jesus' handbook. Our attitudes affect our behaviors or actions. Good behaviors, oft repeated, become habits, and good habits form the basis of character. Identifying with Jesus, lining our lives up with Jesus, 
is how we develop good attitudes and healthy emotional responses to the challenges of life. Depending on his spirit, he gives us the moral courage to make tough choices well. End quote. Take note in Philippians 2.13 of how being connected with Jesus, that abiding, remaining part of the vine and the branches, has outworking in our actions. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God works in you. The Spirit is present in your life, influencing you, guiding you. For what? To will... There's the cognitive decision-making, the determining, the choosing, and to act. There's the energy being applied, the, the limbs moving, the action taken, the phone call made, the person visited, the firewood piled, the card written, whatever it may be. Obedience comes into play. The next verse, Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing. The doing here is an outcome of God working in you, the previous verse, verse 13. And his grace makes it an unselfish doing, without strife or complaining, not self-focused. Christ emphasized the blessing of obedient follow-through after he washed his disciples' feet in John 13, 17. He said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The hymn containing Philippians 2.8 reminds us he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. To the Galatians, after that famous fruit of the Spirit passage, Paul advised, verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You're not walking out ahead of God or off somewhere to the side, just tracing where the master leads, keeping in step with the spirit. Similarly, Peter writes, 1 Peter 2.21, to this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Are you ready and willing to ask the Lord where he wants to take you this coming week? Where do you discern his footprints may be leading you? What's your next step. Last section, champions crossing the finish line. It's been exciting this past week as Canadians have watched more other athletes pick up medals at the Olympics in Tokyo. How cute to see London's Maggie McNeil squinting to see how she came in the 100-meter butterfly and then her reaction. And more recently, Andre de Grasse won gold in the men's 200-meter sprint. DeGrasse is a Catholic who has a prayer tattooed on his forearm there in the bottom right. Uh, that's the, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take, which he says he prays every night. Another tattoo on his arm, more in the middle there, says God's gift. He explained to CBC Sports, when I turned 18, that's when I got into track and I started thinking, maybe God gave me a gift to run. So I ended up putting God's gift right here on my upper arm. What is the gift God has given you? How are you applying it, pressing it into service to bring him glory? What race has the Lord called you to run? The Way of Jesus Handbook notes, we find our life by losing it in Jesus. 
In a lesser way, the sports fan does not think their way into a vicarious life in their sports hero. They have emotionally lost themselves in the sports hero and have found their new identity and purpose, even for a short time, in that sports hero. When Michael Jordan steps onto the basketball court and scores 40 points, I rejoice and I am not diminished by his triumph. His victory is my victory and life is good. If my identification with a sports hero pumps me up, what can it mean when the giver of life steps up and delivers a hammer blow to death and the enemy? When he seeks me out and calls me by name and then adopts me into his family, I am pumped. Uh, is anybody watching, happen to watch the women's soccer final? <laughs> Just a few of us, yeah. It came to, through the hour and 20, 120 minutes, and then it got into penalty kicks, and oh, I thought we lost there, and oh, suddenly uh, we won. Praise God. Ah. But you get emotionally involved. It's not us out there on the field. Why are we feeling the way we're feeling? Because we're identifying with them. Yeah, they're part of us. My family was saddened this past week by the recent death of a dear friend, Auntie Marg Snyder in Sault Ste. Marie at the age of 95. From 1987 to 99, Auntie Marg and her husband, Uncle Jim, here in the picture, had played the role of adoptive grandparents to our young family when we were in northern Ontario. We would often play music in their home with Uncle Jim playing his fiddle, Allison on the piano, and other instruments such as guitar or harmonica joining in. They were active in their community and invited us to events such as Harvest Festival and Canada Day fireworks, and we would have them over for Christmas as the children's real grandparents lived too far away here in southern Ontario to make the trip. Wednesday, I watched the funeral live streamed online. A parishioner from one of my former congregations recalled how she had a secret till now undisclosed, that of all Marg's friends, she knew she was Marg's favorite. She recalled a birthday celebration for Marg's 90th, looking around at all the people in the hall and realizing that they all felt the way she did, that they were all special. Marg had that way about her, so kind and other-centered. She made you feel that you were the focus of her attention. My daughter Meredith, we were watching it together, uh, well, virtually, Keith in eastern Ontario, Meredith in Alberta, we were all watching the funeral online, and she commented she and Uncle Jim were wholly present and attentive. Dare we say we glimpse a bit of Jesus through people like that? the kind of person children would want to get close to and be blessed by because this person makes them feel special. A teacher who is stamping us with his character that is completely unselfish and loving, humble and serving. Jesus invites us to keep in step with him to discover more blessings that await as we obey and serve. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our champion, our hero. This story is not about me. It's all about you and your plan for our lives. Forgive our balking at walking with you. Wash our feet. Cleanse our consciences as we confess. Let your blood purge away our self-preoccupation, our sluggishness, our blind conceit and callous indifference.
May your spirit be at work in us to will and to act according to your good purposes. And may you get the glory when we cross the finish line. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll ask you to stand and if you're able and uh...